encourage you, invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, as Jim just prayed about. We're starting today a journey uh, that'll take us a um, number of months. Most likely we will be in this uh, through, in, into, I should say not through, but into next year, uh, going through the book of Mark. If you're new to studying, reading, learning about the Bible, Mark is the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, we're going to be in this. We started actually last week on Easter Sunday at the end of Mark. And today we're going back uh, to the very beginning. And as you start any book, um, um, I don't know if you're an avid reader or not, uh, books have introductions. Some books have introductions. Uh, Sometimes those are skipped want to get to the important stuff. Uh, I don't really care what the author has to say at the beginning of the book. Let me get to the chapter one. Um, But today, we're not going to just quickly move through Mark's, what I would call, introductory comments. We're going to take time to go through the first 13 verses, uh, which really set up the rest of the book. Uh, These themes we're just going to touch on today fairly quickly. I'm going to give you some background information uh, so you know kind of the context, and then uh, we'll pick up these themes throughout uh, our journey Uh, together. But Mark chapter 1, and again, as we start a book, it's important to know a few things about it. Uh, Whenever you uh, read a new book of the Bible, I would encourage you, there's a number of resources online. Uh, If you want to purchase commentaries, you can, Uh, but there's a number of resources online just to know some of the information because uh, of what's going on, the context, who wrote it, when it was written, what's the backdrop, what's the story it was written into, because all that information affects our interpretation of it. Um, And we understand why did Mark write certain things that Luke didn't write and Matthew didn't write and and John didn't write. And why does Mark write in the way he writes? He writes differently than Luke and Matthew and John. They all write about Jesus, but in different ways. Some of the same stories, some different stories, different ways they write. And we'll we'll talk about even the way Mark writes. So let me just give you a bit of context And then we'll move through uh, the first 13 verses. So maybe it goes without saying, but Mark was written by Mark. Earth-shattering, isn't it? Um, So Mark is written by Mark. A few things you should know about him. Mark was not one of Jesus' disciples. He was not one of the 12. He was not an eyewitness uh, to the miracles, did not hear the teaching firsthand, did not see the fish and loaves multiplied, uh, did not see Jesus walk on water, did not see any of that firsthand. He heard about them. Um, He heard about these stories. And Mark most likely heard them from a couple primary sources or people, I should say, uh, one being Peter, primary, and then Paul. Uh, both who also wrote other letters uh, in the New Testament. And there's a few passages here. There's a, a few other uh, uh, um, passages in the New Testament where Mark is mentioned. These are just a couple, just to just give you a, a sense of Mark. Uh, Acts 12 is when uh, Peter was in prison and miraculously released, and he went to Mark's house after he was released. Uh, 1 Peter 5, at the end of uh, Peter's letter, first letter, he writes uh, some um, 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 acknowledgments of a few people, and Mark being one of them. He actually describes Mark as a son, a true son, uh, not biological in nature, but more like spiritual, uh, uh, one he kind of fathered and mentored and uh, maybe uh, coached, if you will, helped disciple. And, and so Mark gets all his information from those that, you know, obviously Paul didn't see it firsthand either, uh, but he gets his information from those that have lived it, Peter that has lived it, heard the teachings and saw the miracles. So some of the same things that Mark 
talks about, Peter talks about. Um, and it's interesting, even the passage we looked at last week on Easter Sunday in Mark 16, uh, the angel says, and again, this is Mark writing this, but the angel says to the women at the tomb, the empty tomb, go tell my disciples and Peter. So who would have told them about who would have told Mark about Peter's story of, of denying Jesus three times before Jesus was arrested? Peter. And Peter intentionally tells him, include this in the story. Don't forget about this. Write this down. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have left that out if I was Peter. Like, let's, let's forget about that. Push that to the side. You know, that's in the bonus features. Um, but, but he doesn't. He says, include that. And it's significant. So, Again, this is Mark, not a, first, not a disciple, uh, one who walked with Jesus necessarily firsthand, eyewitness, but uh, one who learned from others and then wrote. So what's the time frame or the context? It was written uh, to the church in Rome. It's a very specific group of people that received this letter first. Before you and I, a number of years later, thousands of years later, uh, there was a group of followers of Jesus in Rome, probably somewhere, it's a range. We don't have an exact, I can't give you 55 AD or 65 AD, but it's more of a range. We, it's kind of estimating uh, when it was written, but most likely anywhere from the mid-50s, again AD, to 70 AD is when Mark wrote. And Mark's gospel, I believe, is probably the first one that was written. Of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Mark is probably the earliest or the oldest, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, and it's interesting, the context of what was happening to uh, the Christians in Rome. A lot of things aren't going well for them. And that's why Mark wrote his letter uh, to them, to encourage them. But one thing uh, is, at this time, we're talking probably two to three, depending on exactly when it was written, decades since Jesus uh, lived, died, and rose again, and then 40 days later went back to heaven. So we're talking two to three decades after that is when Mark wrote. So eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus are now dying. So now you have these Christians that have been hearing these stories from eyewitnesses, but now these eyewitnesses are getting old and they are dying. So now there's a sense of like, how are we going to keep these all together, these stories of who Jesus was and what he did all together? So there's that uneasiness. There's also pretty intense persecution. Some of you uh, maybe have already heard about this, but in AD 64 was a pretty significant year for Christians in Rome. In AD 64, there was a fire that ripped through Rome. Uh, what historians say is of the 14 wards, that's how Rome was divided up, 10 are destroyed by fire. It's basically like the Great Chicago Fire. I mean, blocks upon blocks upon blocks of Rome are leveled by fire. There's a rumor that starts to spread in Rome that Nero, who was in charge, started it. The rumor was he started it as part of his urban renewal process. That he wanted to change what Rome looked like. So one way to do it is you just burn it down. And then start again. That's the rumor. Obviously that didn't sit well with Nero. So Nero offered a number of things to try to squelch the rumors, tax relief, food giveaways, a rebuilding program, but these rumors continued to spread and Nero hated that. So what Nero decided to do was, I'm going to put the blame, get the blame off of me, and I'm going to put it on another group of people. And he put it on Christians. He started saying it was Christians who started the fire. 
So what Nero did to punish them was he started killing them in all sorts of ways. He invented ways to kill them. Just one historian's account of what Christians went through, again, AD 64, in Rome. This is one one historian said, every sort of derision, that is like ridicule and mockery, was added to their deaths. They wouldn't just kill them, they would humiliate them in how they were doing it. And here's what, he, here's what it says. They were wrapped in skins of wild beasts and dismembered by dogs. Others were nailed to the cross, crosses. Others, when daylight failed, they were set afire. They were lit on fire. People were literally lit on fire to serve as the lamps at night. So imagine you're a follower of Jesus living in Rome, AD 64. These first these eyewitnesses are dying. Now persecution, unlike you have ever experienced before, is coming upon you. And you've heard Jesus talk about this kingdom of God that has come to earth. And Jesus lived, he died, and now he's risen. And you hear about hope and God's going to come back and change things and redeem things. And, but right now, it seems like life is getting worse them better. And then, to top this all off, in AD 70, and again, they're in Rome, so they're not there, but they hear about it, that in, in Jerusalem, Rome comes in and levels the temple. Burns it down. The Jews had revolted. There was a war, and they actually did a well for a little bit. They were actually winning to some degree, against Rome. But then Rome being Rome, having more manpower, weapons, people, they eventually started winning battles. And they pushed all the way down to, uh, to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, they said, we're going to let you know how bad, or, uh, punish you for what you've done to us. And they destroyed the temple. So imagine being a follower of Jesus. You're going through this persecution. You hear that now the temple's gone. Your place of worship is gone. What is going on? And that is the backdrop, if you will, that Mark wrote. Many believe Mark wrote his letter really as a, like as a pastor, as a pastoral response to these people he cared about to help encourage them, help them keep going, help them stay the course, help them not give up. Because for some of these people to confess being a follower of Jesus potentially meant you were dead. You're going to be fed to the lions. You were going to be dipped in oil and lit on fire. That's what it meant for some of these Christians. So Mark writes this letter hoping to encourage and inspire and keep them going, living, following Jesus' example in the midst of a culture and circumstances that are going from bad to worse. And I wonder, maybe some of you feel that way today. You look at what's happening in our world, in our nation, in your life, and you're just like, God, it's really hard right now. It doesn't seem to be getting better. And we have the Gospel of Mark that will speak to us still today about what it means to follow Jesus, follow his example, and live for him. Like, like we even saw the video, Betty. What does it mean to follow his example and how we love people that maybe we typically wouldn't love or move towards people we typically wouldn't move towards to live for Jesus? So 
For the next several weeks, months, we're going to be learning from the example of Jesus. And it's important to know context because it helps us understand why Mark wrote certain things in his letter. Because he's writing to this, circum- this context that still even speaks to us today. So here's what Mark does. He introduces in this kind of introductory material, first 13 verses. And again, he didn't write chapter verses. That was added later. Uh, It helps us organize things, helps us know where we're going today. But here's kind of the big idea. Mark's going to introduce us. He introduces us to Jesus, who's the central character in all that will follow. Mark isn't the central character. John the Baptist isn't the central character. The disciples aren't the central characters. They're important. They play a role in all of this. We're not the central characters. But friends, as we go through Mark chapter 1 all the way through chapter 16, Jesus is the central character. It's about him. And Mark writes about him. John points to him. The disciples uh, learn to live for him, follow his example. And we do the same today. So let me just read verse 1 of chapter 1. And this is kind of the title, if you will. If Mark had a title, this would be the title. The beginning of the gospel about, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That would be Mark's title if he was to give it one. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What we're going to feel as we go through Mark is Mark writes in a different pace than the rest of the gospel writers. Matthew, uh, uh, Luke, and John. He writes differently, and they all write differently. Mark writes differently. It's, I want to compare it today, maybe help us compare it today to two rides at Cedar Point. Top Thrill Dragster and the Gemini. I'm sure most of us, if all of us have been to Cedar Point at one time or another, uh, these are two rides that are at Cedar Point uh, still. The one on the left, top left there, is Top Thrill Dragster. I need to confess to you, I have never been on this one, nor will I ever go on this one. <laughs> I'm glad my kids are tall enough and they can go on it by themselves. They have a nice set of bleachers right by the ride. You can sit there, eat your hamburger, hot dog, fries. I love it right there. The one on the bottom right is the Gemini. I go on the Gemini. So the difference between these two rides is really how they start. So Top Thrill Dragster, you can see, again, if you've never been on it, there's a firsthand kind of perspective. You're sitting in this, on this roller coaster and there's no hill. There's no click, 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 click up the hill. You sit there and they count down three, two, one, and you take off. I don't know. I think it was 70 something miles an hour. You take off. You go up that hill at the top there and down and you're back in like less than like 20 seconds. I've never gone on it or nor will I. The Gemini is my pace. Click, 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 up the hill. I'm always waiting for the click to not click and the car goes backwards, but it's that slow up the hill and then you're down the hill and you're on your way uh, through the rest of the ride. About two, maybe a minute and a half, two minutes, you're finally back uh, at the station. That's the difference between how Mark feels and writes and how Matthew, Luke, and even really Matthew and Luke, John writes in his own way too. Where Mark doesn't give us here in verse one any of the genealogies that Matthew gives us. He doesn't go back to Abraham and to David and then to Mary and Joseph. He doesn't give us any of the birth narratives. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. This is where he was born. This is the wise men. This is the, uh, the, the shepherds. This is what the angel said to Zechariah. It doesn't, doesn't give us any of that like Matthew and Luke do in unique ways, but they give us these. Mark just hits the pedal to the floor and goes. He doesn't give any much background and he takes off and it is fast paced. 
Throughout this gospel, we're going to see one word, uh, a lot of words throughout it, but, but one particularly, immediately. Over and over and over again, Mark will say immediately, Jesus, immediately, Jesus, it's fast, it moves. And I think it's even our culture today. It's fast paced and it's moving. And Mark writes this way. He, and again, in these introductory words, he's introducing us, he introduces to us, us to Jesus, the central character in all that will follow. And just one other thought I want to put on our radars that we'll keep coming back to today and the next weeks and months ahead is we want to do our best to dig into the original context and how would, of, how would the original readers of, Mark, of this letter hear it? We might there's some uh, um, images and words and pictures in these even 13 verses that when we think about it, we, we think about it through our lens. But I want us to dig into and take the time. Even though Mark is fast and it moves quickly, there are details, there are like breadcrumbs. If you stop long enough and think about them, there's deep meaning to what's happening. So I want us to make sure we always go back to what would the original readers heard have heard? and thought when they read Mark. Because they read it through a different lens than you and I do. So we always need to go back to that. So even in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. When we hear gospel, we can uh, automatically think of the literary genre of the first four books of the Bible, uh, New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're gospels. They talk about the life of Jesus. It, but when Mark writes the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's not talking about a literary genre. He's not saying this is where it fits in the library. This is where it can go on your shelf if you ever shelf organized by genres. But Mark is saying, talk about the gospel, the good news, everything about Jesus, his life, his death, his teachings, his resurrection, his miracles, it's all good news. All of it. And there's also in, it's also interesting to note that this word gospel was used in the culture of Rome. When an emperor had a victory on a battlefield, he would announce gospels. Good news, we won. Good news, we beat this army. We are taking over this territory. When an emperor had a son or an heir or a child, they would announce good news. I have a child. When there were changes that the, go or the government, the emperor wanted to make in the, you know, tax plans and giveaways and building plans, and he would announce these as gospels. That word was very common in that culture. But what's interesting to note is when an emperor would announce these gospels or these good news, these messages of good news, most of the time, if not all the time, the benefits from those good news would only impact a few people. Typically, it was the wealthy, the privileged, those in power would be impacted in a positive way by this good news. But mostly the poor, the marginalized would not be impacted. And sometimes they would be impacted in a negative way. These messages of good news were not good news for all people, but for a select few. And when Jesus, this is a theme we'll see throughout Mark, when Jesus announces a victory, when he announces a victory on a battlefield, so to speak, when he announces good news, it's not just for a few people. 
a select few, but it's good news for all people. All people can be impacted. All people can benefit, not just a select few. So Jesus' gospel, when they heard gospel, they would have automatically thought of what they've heard the emperor declare, but this is a different gospel. And it's one gospel. It's about a person. It's the good news about a person named Jesus, the Son of God. So what Mark is going to do here, and this is where we'll go this morning, what Mark's going to do is Mark's going to give us three scenes to introduce Jesus to us. Three scenes, introductory, we're going to move through these really quickly, kind of sets the tone for where we're going. So the first scene is this. We're going to look first at the forerunner, the forerunner of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 2. It is written, it says, in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So what Mark does here very right at the beginning is he pulls together three passages, uh, verses, writings in the Old Testament. One is kind of hidden. You have to dig for it a little bit and, and to unearth it, to see it. But it's Exodus 23 that talks about a messenger going ahead. And then there's also the ones that are more clear because they have footnotes actually at the bottom um, of Isaiah and Malachi. Two prophets, major prophet, minor prophet. So Mark here at the beginning, before he, as he's talking about who Jesus is, let me tell you who this, the good news about this man is. Mark links him to the Old Testament in three very important ways. Each of those represents Exodus, Isaiah, and Malachi. Each represent significant portions of the Old Testament. The Torah, first five books, the major prophets, Isaiah, and the minor prophets, Malachi. All three are represented in what Mark, I believe, is doing strategically for his readers who would have, who are trying to learn from the Old Testament. That's what they would have had. They're living the New Testament. They don't have the New Testament. They would have had the, they would have had the scriptures He's saying, what you've read about in the Torah, major prophets and minor prophets is all leading to him. It's all connected. This isn't, uh, a, this isn't new, but it's actually connected to the past. And we see Jesus, we see these, um, the Torah, the minor prophets and major prophets all leading to Jesus. And then we see in verse 4, we're introduced to the forerunner, the one who went before. His name's John. In verse 4, it says, And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, Mark, no introduction of who's John. Like, where'd he come from? What's his family? What are, who are his parents? Matthew gives us some about his parents. Luke, excuse me, gives us some of his parents' history. Like, we have not, we don't, Mark, John just shows up. And then there was John. And that's typical Mark fashion. And again, the readers probably would have had some background to know. So Mark doesn't give us all that background uh, that other uh, gospel writers have given. But John, we're told, came uh, pre preaching a baptizing in the desert region. So he's not in the city. He's not in Jerusalem. He's out in the desert. He's out in the wilderness. It wasn't a place that you like to go. Some of us like to get out in the wilderness. I'm not one of them. I like my uh, creature uh, comforts. I like a couch restroom, uh, bed. <laughs> Some of you love the wilderness, but this isn't the wilderness you just go to hang out in. This is a dangerous place. This is a place desolate. 
You don't typically go. But John's out there, and he's at a very well-known river, the Jordan River, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says, we're told, the whole Judean countryside, so they're in near Jerusalem, they're in the outskirts of Jerusalem, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, interesting, people from the city went out to the wilderness, which was very uncommon intentionally going from the city to go spend time out in the wilderness to this man, to be baptized by this man who's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says, many people went out to him confessing their sins and they were baptized by John in a very famous river, the Jordan River. Very famous river in the Bible. A few thoughts here as we think about the forerunner. John is changing, beginning to change the thoughts about baptism. In this context, baptism was something you did more for uh, purification, uh, symbolically purifying, not necessarily purifying from sins, but purifying yourself so you'd be clean, considered clean in their uh, sacrificial system, to be clean. Or baptism was something you did, some did to become, like move into Judaism. You're going to convert to Judaism, you'd be baptized. It was a sign of a sign of conversion. But John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's different. And John is calling people from the city. Remember what's in the city? The temple. The temple was the place where they offered sacrifices so that their sins would be forgiven. But John is calling them away from the temple out to the wilderness to be baptized, to be immersed in the Jordan River, a very significant place in the life of God's people so that their sins would be forgiven. He's setting up what Jesus is doing. And John, again, doesn't give a mark. Excuse me, doesn't give us a lot of description about John. We're basically told what he's doing, where he's doing it. And then we're told his clothing. This is an interesting detail. We're told what he eats or what he wears and eats. Verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John is not trying to be a trendsetter. This isn't like in. This isn't current fashion. It's not moving that way. It's not like John saying, you need to dress like me. This is going to be in soon. No, he's wearing these clothes in many ways to stand out, to be different, so that he would even be recognized by his clothes. And again, even being recognized as a prophet he would have been, his clothes would have been very similar to an Old Testament prophet named Elijah who wore something similar. And the clothes identify who he is and what he's doing and his message. I, I like to even compare it to, uh, there's a well-known gentleman here in Brunswick named the 80s guy. Those of you who live in this area, live in Brunswick, you've, you've probably seen him. He has a Facebook page. As someone told me after the service, I, I forgot his name. His name's Alex Ambrose is his name. Actually, the person here is neighbors with him. But Alex, if you've seen him, I saw him a few weeks ago and the weather was nice, was walking down 303 like he does many times in full 80s rocker gear. If you have not seen this guy, I would encourage you to go on Facebook and look him up. It's amazing what he does. I have almost rear-ended cars as I'm going down 303, sometimes with my phone trying to get a, oh, oh, you know. I mean, it is amazing. But you know who he is based on what he wears. 
And there's something similar about what John the Baptist, he's wearing clothes that people just didn't wear these things. Camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And it's, he stands out. And he stands out intentionally with this message and even the location of where he's at. And it's, here's what his message is. It's about, again, a baptism of repentance, but it's, it's more than that. In verse 7, he says, After this, mes-, and this was his message, what Mark says, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am un- I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. John is developing quite a following. People are going out there. But he says, I'm not it. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the promised one. I'm not the one the Old Testament talked about. It's, I'm, I'm getting you ready for the one coming behind me. And John continually points people to Jesus. And he even goes on to say, I, will, I baptize you with water. I dip you into the Jordan River. I immerse you in the Jordan River. But there's one, the one I'm telling you about is coming after me. He will not, just, he will not baptize you with water but he will baptize you, immerse you with the Holy Spirit. He's more powerful. I'm not even worthy enough to bend down and untie his sandals. That's how holy, powerful he is. I'm just a servant. I'm just following in what God wants me to do. And we begin to learn about Jesus' ministry and what he's going to do through the forerunner, through John the Baptist, the one who went before him. The second scene is this, the baptism of Jesus. It goes on, so John again is baptizing out in the Jordan. Jesus lives in Nazareth, that's in the north, and now he's come down to the south, uh, outside of Jerusalem. And he's baptized. So we, there's a sense of crowds being there. And then in verse 9, no... no um, no fanfare, no trumpets blasting, no entourage with Jesus. He just shows up at the Jordan, gets in line like everyone else, and goes into the water. In verse 9, it says this, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Period. I almost get the picture, maybe you've seen the show, of Undercover Boss. Like he's just there. He's, he's just another guy in line waiting to go into the water. But something unique happens that hadn't happened before at, at a baptism. In verse 10, we as the readers are, are given insight uh, of what happens here. Mark records it for us. In verse 10, it says, As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son with whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased. The, 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 the tense of these words is our singular. There's a sense of Jesus is the only one who sees this happen and hears this happen. Now, obviously, he must have shared it with someone for this story to be recorded. He didn't keep it to himself. But in this moment, Jesus, and now us as readers, get a picture. We get insight. We're allowed in to what took place that day when Jesus, in line with everyone else, when he went into the waters something, and he came out, something different happened. And remember what river he's standing in, or in, being baptized in the Jordan, the Jordan River was the river that the Israelites in Joshua chapter, I believe, two or three, had to cross through to get into the promised land. And when they crossed through the Jordan River, something significant happened in the book of Joshua. It parted. 
and they pass through on dry ground. Now here in this river, in this part of the river, when Jesus goes into the river, the waters don't part. But what parts? Heaven. And it doesn't just part. The text literally says it's torn open. It tears. When something is just opened, you can easily put it back together or close it. But when something is torn, it's hard to get that back to its original state. Much like some of the cereal boxes in our cupboards when our kids try to open them. There's a way to open a cereal box that it will go back together again and keep the cereal fresh. There's another way to open the cereal that is a tearing of the box. And sometimes the tearing of the box leads to the tearing of the bag, which leads to cereal all over the floor. The sense here is that God is now among his people. The veil has been torn, if you will. And we see that at the, uh, Jesus' uh, death when he dies. The veil is torn. The temple is torn. And there's a sense here that Jesus is not just any old man going in to the water to be baptized, but he's different. And when he comes out of the water, the heavens part. They tear. And God in the flesh, we realize, is now with his people. He's here. And that's not it. We're told that Jesus uh, sees the Spirit descending on him like a dove. It's not a, it's not a physical bird. It's, Jesus, it's like a parrot landing on his shoulder. And that bird was on, that dove was on Jesus' shoulder the rest of the time he went about his ministry. It's, it's the idea of like a dove, this gentle descent of the Spirit of God upon Jesus for what he's going to do. And then Jesus not only the, sees heavens t uh, torn, the Spirit descends on him, and then he hears a voice. And the voice came from heaven, you are my son with whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. He hears these words of affirmation. He hears these words of love. This is such a, it's such a tender moment in the life of Jesus. It'll happen again where they hear a voice from heaven later in Mark. And other people hear it, not just Jesus. But in this moment, at the beginning, before Jesus has preached any sermon, before Jesus has healed any person, before Jesus had multiplied any fish, any loaves, anything, before he's done anything, he hears the words of love and affirmation from his father. And I believe it was from that place of identity and the spirit being upon him that he lives. He does. Even when people reject him, there's a sense of identity as God's son. And it's interesting. One thing I forgot to mention back uh, in, in early in Mark, when Mark quotes Isaiah and the prophet and um, Malachi, he, he credits all of this to Isaiah when Isaiah didn't say all of it. But I believe Mark does that because he's saying the book of Isaiah is an important backdrop for what he's going to write. And I say that to say this, because there's this prayer, there's this desire in the prophet Isaiah, when we talk about the heavens being torn open and God being among his people, there's this prayer embedded in the midst of Isaiah, Isaiah 64, that says, oh God, would you rend the heavens and come down? And I believe what we see here in Mark chapter one is a fulfillment of that prayer. 
God, would you rip the heavens? Would you rend the heavens? Would you open the heavens and come down? And Mark writes with Isaiah in the background throughout his writings. The baptism of Jesus. And last scene that we're going to look at today is this. The temptation. The temptation of Jesus. We'll move through this quickly. The temptation. Verse 12, chapter 1. It says, at, that, at once. So the sense soon after. Again, Mark's moving fast. We have no time to waste. We're moving on. Um, Jesus comes out of the water. He, the, the heavens are torn. The spirit descends. The voice from heaven. And at once, it says in verse 12, the spirit sent him, pushed prodded, moved him, led him into the desert. Again, the desert was not a place you like just wanted to go hang out. The desert was a place that, but it was a key place in God's development of his people. As the Israelites came out of Egypt, where did they go first? To the desert. And they wandered in the desert the desert is a key place. It's a staging area, if you will, in the life of God's people for refinement, for prayer, for, for testing. And it's interesting to me that here, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he basically follows the track of God's people in the Old Testament. Before going to heal and perform miracles and teach, where does he go? To the desert. A similar pathway of his people of God's people, into the desert. The Spirit leads him there, and not, he's not there uh, alone, we're told. At once, the Spirit sent him into the desert, and he was there in the desert some 40 days, 40 significant, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the uh, desert here, Jesus is there. And we're told he's there, and he, while he's there, he's being tempted, tested by Satan. Mark doesn't give us a lot of detail of what the temptations are like. Other gospel writers do. But Mark wants us to know that there's an enemy in this, in this reality, in this battle. There's an enemy that's going to try to stop and prohibit Jesus from doing what he's going to do. The enemy is going to offer Jesus a different way to live. And based on the temptations that are recorded in the other gospels, the Satan says to Jesus, how about you choose this way? Instead of going the way your father wants you to go, try it this way. Do you want power, Jesus? I'll give you all the kingdoms. All you got to do is bow down to me. He's offering Jesus another way, another path. He's testing him. And Mark, to try to help us understand the danger or the, the desolation, just how this is like a hard place to be. It's not a resort out in the desert. He says this, and he was with the wild animals. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended to him. It's uncultivated. It's desolate. It's dangerous. There are wild animals there. He needs the angels help to attend to him. And he's being tested for 40 days. And this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the temptation of Jesus. So here's the question I want to ask. So how do these, what we would call introductory words, passages, verses, if you will, what does this help us see today? What does this help us see? And I want us to just go back for a moment, just to verse two. It says again, in the pro it was written in the prophet Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And we can read that a few ways. I think first we can read it as talking about John the Baptist. As one, the messenger who was sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. And I think that's an appropriate reading. 
But as we read Mark, you'll, I think we'll pick up on that. There are deeper meanings and readings to these verses that we've read a number of times. And here's another reading to that that I believe I, I want to just put before us because I think it helps, helps us on our journey, what we're trying to learn over these weeks and months ahead. I want us to look at it this way. Instead of seeing John the Baptist, I want us to see it this way, where it says, I, think about God. God will send my, his messenger. Who's his messenger? It's Jesus. And what is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to prepare a way, your way. Who's your the disciples, the original audience of this letter, and you and I today. Mark writes in such a way that he doesn't want any credit. He doesn't offer credentials. He says, I just want to tell you about who Jesus is. John says, with the crowds coming to him, I mean, multitudes are going out there. You would think that all just go to his head. But he says, it's not about me. It's about the one coming behind me. And I believe what they're doing is they're saying, Jesus is God's messenger who's been sent ahead to prepare our way. Prepare a way for what? Prepare a way for you and I to be reconciled to God and then prepare a way for you and I to live, an example for you and I to follow. So the question for us is, will we follow his way? Will we follow his way to God? Will we follow his way to live? And here's some things we need to know. We'll wrap up with this about his way. And we'll move on these really quickly. And we'll talk about them more in the weeks ahead. We need to understand this way. If we choose to follow this way, this way will involve suffering. The first readers of this letter were suffering greatly. And it's interesting that Jesus, Mark records this. He talks about the temptation of the desert, the suffering, the difficulty. And in a way, he's saying, you are suffering, but know there's one who has suffered also. He's gone ahead of you. He's prepared the way. He, can, he understands what you're going through. This way will not always be easy. We'll talk about carrying our cross. That's not an easy way. This way also will have an enemy. This way has an enemy. This way has an enemy that wants to try to tempt, test you and I to say, there's another way you can live. This will be the easier way. Any subtle can perform, come as an angel of light. There's another way. There's an enemy that will test us. There's an enemy that doesn't want us to follow this way. And with these two, maybe not the best things to think about, but realities, we need to think about this. The last way, this way will require the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you and I are going to follow this way and follow his example, we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's significant that Jesus, before he did anything teaching any outward signs, so to speak, what happened? The Spirit came upon him. And if Jesus needed the Spirit of God, how much more do we need the Spirit of God to be those that will follow his way and follow his example and be transformed from the inside out so that we impact the people and the places around us? Like Betty, who was willing to go to jail and love people there. So this is where we're going. We have a number of weeks ahead of us, a number of months ahead of us. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to pray. We'll have some announcements, collect our offering, and then we'll sing as we wrap up. So let me pray for us. So God, here at the beginning of this journey, we 
really just surrender it to you. This is your journey for us. Um, we sense right now as a community of faith, a church congregation here. And so, Lord, you have some things to teach us about Jesus through Mark's writing. I pray you'd help us to always remember context. What, who, what would, how would the original readers have heard this? What does that mean for us today? Give us soft hearts that will receive what you have for us today, this week, this month, these weeks ahead. And God, I do pray that we would follow your way. I'm thankful that you've prepared the way. You've prepared the way for us to be reconciled to God through your life, death, and resurrection. And you have prepared a way for us to live. And I pray that we wouldn't just hear the word, but be doers. Follow your way. Follow your way of living. Follow your example. Even when it's hard, even in testing, and Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. So even in these moments, we just ask for a fresh filling of your spirit to be the people you want us to be as we leave this place. So thank you, God, for the journey ahead. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.